Coming soon to a city near you, Vinitaly Roadshow. Have you ever wondered how to attend Vinitaly for free? Are you a wine trade professional interested in a sponsored trip to Vinitaly International Academy or Vinitaly, the wine and spirits exhibition? Coming soon to Princeton, New Jersey, Harlem, New York, and Chinatown in New York City, Cardiff in Wales, London in England, and Roost in Austria. We'll be giving away our new textbook, Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0. Find out more about these exciting events and for details on how to attend, go to liveshop.vinitaly.com. Limited spots available. Sign up now. We'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and my guest this week is Donna Hartman, Esquire. Donna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. I'm happy to be here. We appreciate you taking the time to do it. So give us a a bio of you and your involvement in the industry. Today, folks, we're going to be talking about legal issues. Now, don't leave because it's going to be interesting, but Donna, a little background. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Yes, please don't leave. Well, um, when you say that I'm an attorney, that makes most people leave, but uh, hopefully because I'm an attorney in this industry, that maybe I'll be a little bit helpful. So um, I'm a corporate attorney with a focus on beverage alcohol. So I have the ability to work with clients from um, conception of a startup through growth and eventual merger, acquisition, or sale. So my focus really is on helping clients uh, get into the business where they start, whether it's permits and licenses, working on distribution agreements, helping them um, expand their business, whether it's through uh, media outlets, sales representatives, intellectual property, or um, again, sale or merger. So I like to help everybody through the full life cycle of their business. And again, because my background is in the corporate world as well as beverage alcohol, I think I bring a little more to the table that helps somebody out with their actual business. Corporate in that you've worked for um, some multinational yes. beverage alcohol brands. Okay. So let, let's uh, let's start off with one of the issues both of us deal with is working with new brands who are coming to the U.S. market. Um, in many cases, it could be new to the U.S. brands, uh, and it also could be new to the world brands. But for the sake of today, let's focus on new to the U.S. brands. One of the big challenges we face is their lack of understanding or, or knowledge of how the U.S. market functions. Um, at what point do you kind of initiate relationships with people like that? At what point did they get to the point where they realize, oh, gee, I really need to talk to an attorney. Um, it, it really varies. I mean, I have clients that that reach out to me or potential clients that reach out to me and say, you know, I understand that you're in the beverage alcohol space. I want to start selling X product in the U.S. and I want to do it nationally. So then we have to, of course, step back and say, well, what are you looking to sell 
how are you doing it? Are you familiar with the industry? And then let's start, you know, talking about what steps you need to take before this is actually going to happen. So some come um, with absolutely zero knowledge about the industry whatsoever. Again, it's um, this dream that they've always had to start a business and they want to be able to sell wine in the U.S. or they want to buy a vineyard, etc., or there may be somebody who maybe has talked to a couple of people and said, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Let me do this. And maybe they have a little bit of knowledge. Uh, so it, it really um, it depends on the individual. So, again, I've talked to people who know absolutely nothing. And then I've also talked to people who have actually been in the industry and maybe they worked for a company and decided, you know what, I want to go branch off on my own and start a business. So one of the areas that is uh front and center in, in, in everything that we do is obviously distribution because it's a three-tier system. But the distribution tier, if you will, is changing. And it, it certainly has continued to change since 1933, but I think it's um, it has, uh, really increased in the rate of change. Can you talk about some of the things that have kind of are front and center on in the way distributors are approaching new producers. And that could be either dealing with them directly or uh, through what we would call agency brand importers. Sure. I, I think that the landscape right now is very difficult for people that are looking to break into the market because you have the larger distributors who may have started out regionally and then they've combined, right? So you've had mergers, acquisitions, and they've gotten much broader in scope. So they may have gone from a regional territory to national. So you have the very, very large players that dominate the industry. Then you have others that are smaller in scope. So you may have a few distributors that may just be state-specific or a few states. They may also have distributors that could be city-specific, county, depending on the region or the territory that they're going to be in. So when a new person is coming to launch a brand or to have distribution of their brand, it is difficult to get that attention. First of all, you have to try and get the appointment with the distributor. And depending on who you're going to schedule your meeting with, it may be easier or more difficult, right? So there are some people who may have a connection to somebody who's in one of the largest distributors and they may then get a meeting. Doesn't mean that that brand will actually be taken on and represented. On the other hand, you may be able to go to a smaller distributor, you may be able to get the meeting, but then you're not sure if that's gonna be the right distributor for you and your product. So right now, talking to various people in the industry, uh, veterans and people who are new to the industry, I'm, I'm getting a lot of that feedback where they're having that difficulty. And I think that's probably the most frustrating part of, of the business is really to getting a seat at the table to talk to somebody, talk about the distribution of the product. So let's take a look at a, a small subset, but a really important one, and that is people who are already imported into the U.S., already have distribution, but feel very frustrated that they're not getting uh, what they want to see in terms of time and intention uh, from um, both the importer and or um, the distributor. Even to the point that with, especially with consolidation, some distributors are shedding brands. So a lot of people are finding out, gee, I, or coming to the realization that, gee, maybe I'd be better off somewhere else. And some of them are in a position where they have to find somewhere else because they just got uh, DC'd by their existing distributor. What advice do you have for people like that? 
Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mono Jumbo Shrimp family. Well, I, I think your question may be twofold. So first, if, if I understood correctly, we're talking about an importer and or service provider that a brand owner may be working with. And in that case, I would suggest that they would have hopefully a written importation agreement with that importer or the service provider. And in such case, if it is a written agreement, hopefully, and this doesn't always happen, there would be details in that agreement that govern their relationship. Specifically, what duties do does the importer have? What duties does the supplier or producer have? And then um, if they're not meeting those duties, well, then usually there's some type of remedy that would be written in the agreement. Oftentimes what happens is that somebody is really excited that they found an importer or service provider and they say, you know, sign here, and they do without actually reading the terms of the agreement. And then unfortunately, there may not be those details that you would want, right? So um, if Steve, you're an importer and you say, Donna, you have this brand, I'll sign you up right now. And I just sign your generic blank form that doesn't really say anything other than you're going to represent my brands and you, you know, we're in it for life then I may not really have any recourse against you to, number one, get out of that agreement, or number two, um, make you do certain things to comply with whatever those duties are. So what what could those duties be? Well, it could be to represent my brand. It may be to grow the brand by X percentage. It may be to get that product into different outlets. So depending on what you negotiate, um, hopefully that would be in the agreement. If we're talking about with a distributor, Again, if you're dealing directly as a supplier with a distributor, say you're already based in the U.S., uh, you would want to have similar terms, right? Again, how long is your engagement for? What happens in case somebody breaches uh, their duty? How do you terminate in case it's just not working? And then following following whatever the steps are that are actually in that agreement. Again, oftentimes... People are just excited that they're going to get distribution and they sign it and they really don't um, work on the details or negotiate the terms. As we know, when you meet somebody and you're starting to forge a relationship, everything is all happy and great and, you know, everyone has the best intentions. Unfortunately, life being what it is, sometimes we don't always meet those obligations. And unless you do that at the onset and have something in writing that you could actually, you know, that has some teeth, Oftentimes you find out that people may be stuck. Well, my experience, and I, I would imagine yours is too, that those are the people who end up calling us. So, so they're, they're already in a hole. Yes, that's true. And most of the time it's because they don't have a contract or it's not an actual signed contract. It may be something as loose as a verbal agreement or it might even be something that actually is written down either on paper or electronically in an email, but isn't very... It isn't a you know fully fleshed out contract. With if if this happens, then this will happen. Um, and so you've got two different people, two different sides, um, who have differing perspectives on what they want and what they can expect. Then we get called. You get called separately and differently than I do to to try and find some way either out of that or to resolve the situation and maintain the relationship. And I've always been a believer that it's much better to resolve a dispute you have with somebody than to just dump it and go to somebody else. But what what I was really uh, looking 
for the answer to is I see a number of brands saying, oh, well, I'm gonna, I want to start my own import company in the United States. So I get guaranteed 100% of the time and attention. And we've seen some brands like uh, Santa Margarita do that. On the Italian side, Pasqua has recently done that. Uh, Zonine um, has done that as well. And I, I think it's probably true for brands that have an established presence in the U.S. are selling. The brand is, is recognized. It's got a track record of sales. It has an existing distribution network. It's selling through chains as well as e-commerce and all the rest of that stuff. But what about the little guy who, you know, may, may have some Brunello or something that's only selling, you know, uh, a couple of pallets in New York and New Jersey and, and so forth? What can they do when things go sideways? Well, if they're in an agreement, you know, again, I, I agree with you. You try to work out whatever the disputes are, and, and hopefully you can come to some meeting of the minds where, it's, you, you can work it out and they can continue the relationship. If they can't, again, depending on the terms of the agreement, where they're located, are they in a franchise state? Are they able to get out of an agreement even if they don't have one in writing? Depending on the particular state, there could be statutory language that binds them to that wholesaler. So in some cases, the, the uh, producer could be stuck. In cases, if they're not in a franchise arrangement, and they want to get out of it, and it's possible to do so, yes, they can start their own importation company, but oftentimes what they don't realize is that it's expensive to do so because you need to have the proper licenses. So if they're coming in and they're represented either by an importation company or a service provider, they're using the, you know, they, um, they would still have to have a federal basic permit, but if they also then want to be in different states, depending which states they are, then they would also have to get their importer and or wholesale license in those states that allow for that and or out-of-state shipper permits, again, depending on where they want to be. And when you start adding up all of those costs for the different permits and licenses, and then the, the company usually realizes, well, maybe this isn't what we want to do. So better, better that they realize that beginning before they fall into those traps, because the, the, it's very seductive to think, oh, I'll, I'll have 100% of their time and attention focused on me. You also have 100% of the costs. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no offset of, of splitting those costs. It's all you. So I also, we also talk to a lot of uh, smaller brands who are looking to come to the U.S. market and, and confused on, on how to come. I've, I've got uh, how to get here and how to find, start with importers as opposed to distributors. What is your advice to a brand, talking with a Pullian brand right now who wants to come to the U.S. and really doesn't know anything? And yeah, told them to read my book and all that, but right. I don't think they're in a position where they can interpret and really understand all the things that, that go in there. So what what is the best next steps for somebody who wants to come to the U.S., wants to start to learn, but acknowledges that they don't know enough and it's a bit risky early on? In my experience, people, especially in Italy, have been really very gracious and talking to others who already import into the United States. So if they do that, they can get an idea of the landscape and, and maybe who to talk to. That, that's a good source. Uh, again, we have so many different trade organizations here locally uh, where they can reach out or get information online and then start interviewing and talking to different importers uh, specifically. So say if somebody was in Italy and they wanted to start importing into New York, it's easy to, to, to look up and see who's doing that. And they may specify are they, um, is it an artisanal product? 
So do they want to work with a you know an importer that, that specializes in that and has a sales force that maybe can work on a hand sell for that type of product? Or are they looking for something else, you know, whatever specific to their particular brands? Okay. For clarity, when you were talking about service companies, you mean service importers like MHW, Ellen Tenney, USA Wine West is one, and Park Street, of course. And that's great. It's a way to lease kind of your way into the U.S. presence without carrying all the costs yourself. You still need distribution solutions. So one of the things that people come to me and they say is, look, I, I want to bypass the three-tier system. And after we explain to them, well, you can't bypass the three-tier system, they say, yeah, but, you know, maybe I can do something like with a clearing wholesaler so that basically what they're trying to do uh, is to manage somebody else's margins. And, and my advice is always be don't, because um, it's not going to be successful. It's the old kind of thing about, you know, you can't put lipstick on a pig. A, it doesn't work, and B, it pisses off the pig, right? So th that's kind of the challenge here. But they look at solutions like e-commerce, which appear more direct. Are, are, is there any advice? What are the things you're seeing in terms of the evolution of e-commerce as a way of either breaking in and being a sole way of selling in the U.S. or as a complement to a more traditional uh, three-tier system uh, structure? I view e-commerce more as a complement to the traditional three-tier system because, again, if you're working with an e-commerce platform, the goods still have to come in. And you're saying if they're just looking for a clearinghouse or something like that. But again, to get the attention, you're, there still has to be traditional distribution. So the e-platform is one way to get there where I think we've talked about in the past where you're saying, you know, this is like the endless rows of, of product that people can, can go onto a platform and see it. However, how are they going to know to buy your particular product? So I think there are still some challenges there where, again, if you're working with a distributor which has a sales force, again, depending on the product and, and what you've worked out, that they can go out there and help sell and, and market that product. In addition, usually um, the producer will have salespeople or hire people to help get create that brand awareness, which you know very well to get out there in the market. So I think the e-platform alone isn't sufficient enough. You know, maybe in the future, maybe that will be. But at least with the clients that I've been dealing with and uh, my colleagues in the industry that I speak with, it's it's more of a, a hybrid, if you will, if they're going to go with the e-commerce. You know, one of the things I see a lot, and I, I fall into the trap as well, is, you know, everybody, not everybody, but you hear people complaining about, well, this distributor is not doing this and they're not doing that. or And, and there may be a, a difference, shall we say, between expectation and delivery. Distributors provide a, a significant value to everybody in the system because it's literally written in into the, the law. Right. So they have to be there. So the best thing that a, a, an individual producer can do is to find a distributor who can work with them collaboratively to provide the services that that entity needs um, and focus resources on the things that the entity can't do that the distributor is strong with, obviously having the uh, on-premise uh, on and off-premise relationships. Where I, where I was going with that, uh, that don't look at distributors as evil, but that sounds so horrible. The, the idea is people who have been unsuccessful in the U.S. market tend to vilify, after the fact, distributors or importers, when oftentimes the problem is 
uh, lack of understanding of how the U.S. market works and having a disconnect between expectations and the reality of what happened. How do you avoid that happening in the first place? Again, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to the default of being an attorney. Uh, there should be an agreement. There should be something in writing because you do need to manage expectations, right? Because I mean, it's the analogy is like you send your child to school and you expect the teachers to teach them everything, whether, you know, it's, whether it's going to the restroom or learning algebra. I mean, you can't just send them off and have your hands off and say, okay, you take care of it. That's the same thing with a producer talking to a distributor and just saying, here's, you have my product now, go do what you do. It's not how it works. The producers, the owners, they have to be involved. They have to be involved, whether it's sitting down and working with, whether they're dealing with an importer, they're dealing with a distributor, there has to be a business plan. There has to be funds to support that brand. There needs to be discussions about, or, you know, how are you going to work together in the market? Do they have uh, salespeople that would actually sell their product? Or is that on the brand owner? Because depending on the is the brand new to the market? Is it going to sell itself? You know, I, again, there has to be funds behind that as well. So you can't just expect the distributor to do everything for you. It's a partnership. And it, as you know, as well as I do, this industry is all about relationships. So if you sit there and act like a prima donna and just say, here, go do this. Well, guess what? Your product is not going to sell. It's not going to be distributed. And we know distribution is a must because if you don't have that, your brand is going to fail. I've talked to plenty of producers that have wonderful products, and I'm sure you've come across many yourself. The product is great, great ingredients. The process is wonderful. It could be, it could be, you know, innovative, uh, great packaging. They have a great backstory. And if they don't have distribution, it's not going anywhere. So don't, don't beat up the wholesaler or the distributor. Um, let, let's shift gears a little and, and talk about kind of the the end game of this for probably less so for wineries and more so for spirits, but still it applies to, to both. At some point in time, uh, there's an interest in selling the brand, the property, the winery, whatever it happens to be. What What's happening in mergers and acquisitions? And are there trends here that uh, uh, people should be aware of? Yeah, you know, obviously with what's happening in the market right now with interest rates going up and, you know, again, um, you're hearing a lot of, of this buzz in the, in, in the industry about, well, are, are people still buying wineries? Are they still buying brands? And the answer is yes. Uh, you know, we saw that during COVID. We saw it 2021. There were still sales going on in 2022. You are still seeing deals that are coming together in 2023, which you could see already. However, the difference I see right now is that there may be more focus on the due diligence piece where it may take a little longer. People are, you know, they're going to kick the tires, but they're going to inspect them a little more so than they were in the past. And it depends if it's is this a strategic acquisition, merger, whatever it's going to be. Is it something necessary? And when they're doing that, that may the price may suffer, but the deal doesn't mean that deals aren't going to happen. I still think deals are still happening. I'm seeing it across different industries as well. So that's the good news that we're still pretty busy. We do a lot of we do a lot of deal work at my firm. And thankfully, you know, things are still robust. But you will see more focus on due diligence. So it could take a little longer, 
and the prices could be a little softer for somebody who's who's selling. So taking a little longer, That's uh, you used two words earlier when we were talking about this, and that is patience and preparation. You want to comment on that? Patience, patience, patience. Yes, that would be the mantra, I would say, in this industry, because um, as, as we've talked about in the past, people want instant gratification. I have a great brand. I'm going to go hit the market running and it's going to fly off the shelves and it's going to be a big hit. They hear about, you know, they what they believe are, you know, these miracle stories about brands that someone came up with a concept and they sold it for, you know, 75 million or another one did it for a half a billion or um, there are these numbers that are out there. And there are instances that we know of that there were pretty quick turnarounds, right? They were the crazy hockey stick trajectory. Uh, but that's not the norm. You know, you get the brands like a Patron is one of my favorites because Patron hit the market and people were like, oh my God, this brand's fantastic. Like it just hit and it was an instant success. That was a brand that took time to build. I mean, you know, you're talking about 10 years or whatnot. And then it was a household name and everybody knew about it, but everybody wants something to hit right away. And then when you have celebrities or somebody see a celebrity's brand sold for X number of dollars, they think this is what's going to happen. And they jump into the arena thinking, wow, I have a really good product. This is going to happen for me. And again, that's when I, one of the things I do is I, I, I counsel my clients. So it's not just that they come to me and say, here, can you do this, you know, prepare this agreement for me? And then I just give it to them. I talk to them about it. What are you looking to do? What are the future plans? Because that helps me understand what they're looking to do and what protections they may need, you know, going forward and whatever we're working on. And if they think this is just going to be something that's really quick, I like to talk to them about why they think that's so. And then again, give them a little more education on the industry, because as you mentioned, there are a lot of people that come in that may know absolutely nothing about the industry, but just believe, you know, it's like any other business, you can just buy and sell and it's going to be great. And then there are others that know a little bit about the industry, but a little a little that could be dangerous. It's just not enough. It's, it's not a fulsome um, experience. Yeah, that's true. So uh, wineries who recognize that you know they can't grow because there's a physical limitation to the land that, that they, they can um, produce on. They don't want to buy or purchase contract grapes. Um, what is the future, especially when the kids uh, don't want to stay on the farm, but want to you know live in Milan or Rome or New York or London or those kinds of things. So, so what are the options open to um, wineries that are very uh, vineyard owner ownership? I think there's a bit of a struggle. Um, again, working with some of my clients who are suppliers and, and they have vineyards and, and they've been doing this for generations. Um, I have some where the next generation is ready to take the helm and, and, and go into the family business. I have others where they would like the children to, to come and take over, but the parents aren't ready to um, let, let hold of the reins. And then the kids are getting upset because they think they're old enough, mature enough where they can make decisions. But again, they're still kind of under the thumb. And then the third group is the younger generation, you know, they enjoyed all the trappings of, of the lifestyle that their parents and their grandparents may have, have uh, afforded them, but they're not interested in the business. You know, whether it's they're not interested in, in wine in general, or it, it, it's just not something that they want to do. They want to go and forge their own path. So there's no interest. 
And unfortunately, in that case, what you're seeing is that families may have to then sell the vineyards because, number one, the cost is very expensive, as we know, to run it. Uh, there are labor shortages. You may not have people to actually perform the services that need to uh, to be performed to run your business. And, you know, the kids rather have their their the funds to go out and do what they want. So the family may have to turn around and, and then sell it. So again, you're seeing uh, some of these very large and prestigious estates that are being sold. Um, we've seen, you know, a couple in the past couple of years uh, that were pretty significant. So they, again, they're, if they're looking for a premiumization strategy, so there may be an opportunity for those families that are looking to sell their vineyards. And if it's a smaller tract of land, well, I think then that may be a little limiting because then you're going to have a smaller pool depending on where they are, unless it's a very the terroir is, is, is unique or, um, you know, it's a, a certain type of grape that they're growing that's unusual that you can't get anywhere else because then they they may not have an option to do anything that's um, that's really going to help out the family or they're going to sell it for a premium. It's a conundrum. Um, but as conundrums, conundrug, oh, that's a, probably a pretty good one. What am I going to do with my estate? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I guess it's the existential. I get that, but still, in all, you're still. I'm. I'm. What, what I was thinking of is like so many people want to buy a winery in Napa for the lifestyle of it, not for the the you know the profits that's going to generate because oftentimes there isn't any, and it can often be just a sink, a sinkhole. <laughs> it's a good problem to have, right? What do I do last day? We, we talk about that, right? They romanticize about it. It's like. I want to wake up and see these fields of grapes and the beautiful aroma and the, you know, the sunrise and, but you have to work it. It's a business. And I think that's where sometimes people get a little lost. And, and an agricultural business for that, which means you're, you're digging holes and you're sweating and there's bugs and. Yes. Yes. Because there's animal manure and there's. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody talks about the bugs, right? Steve, come on. <laughs> There was a, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank report 2023 just came out the other day, uh, and I would urge anybody listening to go get a copy of it. it. It's free online. Just look up Silicon Valley Bank report 2023. But one of the, the fundamental points about it was that the wine industry is not doing a good job of uh, speaking to millennials and Gen Z to the point that we're seeing decreases in consumption and the industry is kind of, if you oversimplify it, the boomers are kind of propping it up and there's not these new generations coming in who are drinking wine. How to fix that is a marketing question, but how do producers deal with that? And then let's take an example, a hypothetical one, but let's say it's a, a Chianti producer or we'll say a Brunello producer. Um, so it's a high-end wine. It's going to be selling for over $40 retail. There's a fair amount of margin in there. It's also very cost and labor intensive to make it. You've got to store it, you know, for years and, and the cost of inventory and all that kind of stuff. And people are, uh, one of the words that's being used is the on-ramp. In fact, there was a, a, a program that was being developed and tried to get uh, funded. Uh, by American wineries about creating an on-ramp for these new generations to uh, be attracted to wine. Do you see that happening on your side, or are we just uh, an older group of people just talking to ourselves and not really being aware of what's the real thing that's coming down the pike? Did you just call me old? <laughs> Certainly not. All right, let me, let me 
Uh, people who are not millennials or Gen Z. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think you see different trends with different generations of, of what they're drinking. So what's happening now uh, with the, I think, moving away from wine or having moved away from wine is, is not different from, you know, the generation that the madman generation, when, you know, you had the the scotch whiskey rye bourbon cart rolling out during the day and brown spirits were really what were at was you know what was happening or i guess you could throw in the martinis as well and then there was that big shift to wine right and then what was a decade ago brown spirits weren't really attractive and now what happened it's like boom this is you can't get your hands on brown spirits right now right if you if you're a producer and you want to uh, start your own branch go and try and find bourbon right now Good luck. So I, I think it's 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 like anything else. I mean, you have cycles. I think there are trends, and um, you know, the the younger generation they're looking for things that um, they're looking for non-alcoholic beverages, right? So you you have that trend going on. They want something where it, there it has to be meaningful to them. There has to be a cause behind it. So there are a lot of different things that I think come into the mix as to why there's been a shift away from some wine. Kind of running out of time now. I usually like to end my um, interviews with a, the question, what's the big takeaway? We've talked about, we touched on a number of subjects here today. But um for the people who are listening who are mostly in, in the trade and, and primarily in the U.S., what do you think is a big takeaway of, of some of the things that we talked about here? I think the most important thing is for individuals to do their homework. And, and what I mean by, by that is really to, um, whether you're in the, in the industry now or just starting out, do your homework. Talk to people in the industry. Read what you can. Talk to others whether it's importers, distributors, retailers, get an idea of, of the marketplace and, and what what your dream is. If your your dream is to sell X wine, well, find out, is the market saturated? Is this something that people want? You know, getting into the push-pull um, issues with marketing, um, make sure you have enough capital, that you have a business plan and that you have capital and understand what it's going to cost to not only start the business, but maintain it for a period of years because we know it's not going to be an immediate success. So have a plan as to your funds, your maintenance funds, and then a backup plan. Do you need to raise funds later? Are you going to go to friends and family? Are you going to go to an institution? What are you going to do to sustain that business? And how long do you want to be in it? How long are you going to set aside for it to be a success? Um, or if you say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I think if you can kind of map that out, again, do your homework. Um, I think you'll probably be successful. Do your homework. It's kind of like that. That's a something I've been hearing since I was a kid. <laughs> I guess it was good advice, right? We're talking this week with uh, Donna Hartman of Olander Feldman. Uh, law firm in New Jersey, specializing in the beverage alcohol industry. Uh, Donna, if people want to reach out to you, um, can they via email? What would, be, what would be the best way for them to reach? Absolutely. I can be reached at dhartman at olenderfeldman.com. So D-H-A-R-T-M-A-N at O-L-E-N-D-E-R-F-E-L-D-M-A-N.com. Donna, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you somewhere in the world of wine soon. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It was my pleasure to be here. 
Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast.